ninjas, calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Today on Lime Ninja Radio. 40% carry Borrelia, 44% carry Bartonella, 10% carry um, Ehrlichia, and 8% carry Babesia. So if statistically you're going to look at what would be the co-infection you're going to find most often, it would be, with Borrelia, it would be Bartonella. And I don't know that Bartonella has quite been accepted as the major player that it actually is. This podcast is sponsored by the Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. I'm so excited to tell you about our new Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. One of the things I hear over and over again, whether it's talking to a patient in my office or consulting over the phone with a client, is just how difficult it is to keep track of progress on their Lyme journey. Recording symptoms daily or even weekly gives them too many data points. There are so many ups and downs, twists and turns that at some point they get lost and confused. The Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker takes all the guesswork out of tracking symptoms with a simple monthly questionnaire. Once a month is the perfect interval to see if that new supplement or protocol is working. Right now, when you take the Symptom Tracker questionnaire, we give you a simple composite score for the month. But we have big plans and the data you enter will not be lost as we roll out new features. Best of all, it's free. Just head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker and sign up. That's LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker. You'll be glad you did. Join us every Thursday on iTunes for the latest episode of Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, I'm your host and acupuncturist, McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 205. And this week we have with us Dr. Neil Nathan. Also, welcome our show producer and the brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Aurora. Hello, and in this episode, you will learn how secondary porphyria can impact your Lyme journey, what carbon monoxide poisoning has to do with Lyme symptoms, and why mast cells don't deserve the bad rap they get. Thanks, Aurora, and be sure to listen to the end of the episode for the Lime Ninja Fact of the Day. As you all know, Lyme disease is an international problem. Each week we have listeners join us from all over the world. And this past week we've had listeners from Cyprus to Switzerland and from Poland to the Philippines. Also, a big thank you to all you longtime Lyme ninjas. Aurora and I really appreciate you tuning in. And we'd like to welcome all the new listeners out there. Welcome to Lime Ninja Radio. We're glad you tuned in. Yes, speaking of tuning in and listening, this week's top 10 tune-in cities are... Starting at number 10, Vancouver, Washington. Number 9, Vaughn, Washington. Number 8, Rialto, California. Number 7, Hesperia, California. Number 6, Manhattan, New York. Number 5, Walnut Creek, California. I'm detecting... A theme here. We're a little bit. Number four, Los Angeles, California. Number three, Palma Valley? Yeah, Palma. Palma Valley, California. Number two, Dallas, Texas. And number one this week is Dudley in the UK. UK. Welcome, UK. Also, do you know your Lyme score? If not, do yourself a favor, head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com and fill out the Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. It's free. Okay, Aurora, tell us a little bit more about today's guest, Neil Nathan. Dr. Nathan is a family physician who graduated from the University of Chicago's Pritzker School of Medicine. From the beginning, he's been drawn to helping people with complex medical problems. He now primarily works with people with chronic illnesses like fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, and chronic Lyme disease, and has several written and has written several books on how to help people with these complex chronic illnesses. Thanks, Aurora. And here is our interview with Dr. Neil Nathan. Hello, Neil. This is McKay Rippey from Lime Ninja Radio. Uh, Great, McKay. Great to have you on your show today. I'm very, very excited to speak with you because you're pulling together some very interesting and maybe obscure symptom patterns and disease 
pathologies, including mast cells and porphyrins, which I've just been learning about in the past couple months, and linking that in with infections in mold exposure. And that is quite the perfect storm, to use a cliche these days. Uh, yes, it is. Um, and I think it's a lot more common than people realize. Um, many people who present with the very odd symptoms that we'll probably be talking about are, have learned that they really can't talk to their family or friends or even their doctors about it because as soon as they start to describe their symptoms, the eyebrows go up, the eyes start rolling, and, and they immediately get the sense of, uh-oh, you're not going to understand what I'm saying. So how did you begin? Because your, your history is you started off as a family doctor and an ER doctor in a small town, and mm -hmm. now you know, you're more toward my side of things. I'm an acupuncturist, and we tend to believe everybody initially and then work from there rather than the other way around. Tell me about your journey. Oh, <clears throat> I remember the Bill Cosby line. I started as a child. <laughs> <clears throat> Most people sorry. do, although. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm sorry, I, can't, I couldn't pass that up. Um, um, uh, I think I was always interested in medicine and research. Um, even as a teenager, I worked in a chemistry laboratory and a research laboratory and... Um, worked as a, um, an orderly in an emergency room and realized that I, I just really liked working with people. So for me, it was always a passion going to medical school. And honestly, I, I was shocked when I got to medical school because I wanted to be a healer when I grew up. And I discovered in medical school that wasn't what they were going to teach me. And in fact, it wasn't even something that people wanted to talk about. So I was quite disappointed that what I wanted to learn about wasn't quite what I was going to be taught. Um, so I went to the University of Chicago, and I left with my degree, um, but was passionate about helping people, and I kept feeling that what we called conventional medicine um, didn't embrace enough scope to really help people with their problems. In other words, if you had a sore throat, great. We were good for that. If you had a gallbladder attack, great. We were good for that. But if you had complicated illness or chronic illness or something that fell a little bit out of the realm of symptomatology, um, that my field wasn't really geared to that. And so at a very early time, I, I left medical school, went into the Indian Health Service. I worked in South Dakota, um, Oklahoma, and Alaska. Then I came back to Northern California, where I was in, as you said, uh, family practice, ran the ER for a while, delivered babies, did a little bit of surgery. But at the same time, I was studying as hard as I could with other people. One of my partners was a chiropractor, and I studied manipulation with him. He convinced me to study emotional release work, so I learned Reikian therapy, I also then went on to study osteopathic manipulation, particularly cranial work. Um, I had an acupuncturist working in my office, so I studied acupuncture. And I began to acquire a skill set, a toolbox, if you will, that I could help a lot more people than many of my colleagues did. And I, I loved it because I felt I could help a lot more people. And over the years, I've simply added to that toolbox. And because of my interest in, if you will, outliers or people who my colleagues weren't able to help, I got more and more interested in things like chronic pain, eventually chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia. That led to my interest in Lyme disease and mold toxicity. And I have sort of evolved into helping people that other people don't quite know what to do with, which doesn't quite have a name yet as a medical specialty. It should be, though. I had a patient for a short period of time, and he had to retire. He was a pediatric uh, surgeon, and an orthopedic surgeon, 
and Lyme disease finally robbed him of his career. But before he was well known and he prided, what's the past tense of pride? He took pride <laughs> in, well, in taking having, care of and taking on patients who his colleagues just didn't want to deal with because they were too complicated or, or required too much time. Yeah, and I, I'm different in that I love complexity. It's <laughs> kind of like I love problem solving, and it's sort of like if it's complicated, bring it. Bring it um, on. Well, it's just how I'm wired. Um, and that impetus has led me to study more, study harder, expand what I know, because I'm particularly drawn to the people that I can't figure out, which is there's got to be an explanation for this. I just don't have it yet. And, mm-hmm. You know, that's been the driving force be- behind my my passion for learning. And so it, it's a nice wedding of my passion for learning and helping people. kind of works okay. Now, now, the name of your book is Toxic. And early on in the book, you distinguish between toxicity and sensitivity. And why is that important? Well, because I think those get confused. I think often people lump both of those together. And although there is an overlap, they're not quite the same thing. Sensitive refers to a hyperreactivity of the nervous system. And so the patients who are sensitive are often ones that the medical profession tends to turn its back on, where they say, um, I have a horrible reaction if I take probiotics or if I take even a tiny dose of this medication, I, I can't even function for days afterwards. And, and often colleagues or medical people are rolling their eyes and going, oh, God, one of those. And they would be wrong almost all the time. These are very, very real sensitivities with real causes. And it's important. In fact, I wrote the book primarily for that population of patients who have not been taken seriously and have very real issues with causes that we can, by and large, identify and treat now. Now, toxicity is a bit different in which exposure to toxins like mold toxicity, heavy metals, um, petrochemicals, glyphosate, um, among others, literally poison the body's symptoms and can contribute to sensitivity, but has to be approached differently, meaning in all of medicine, no matter what you're doing, you have to know what you're treating first. You need a diagnosis. And distinguishing them can be very helpful in that regard. So, Am I, am, am I answering your question? Y- you are. And to, to sum up, see if I'm understanding correctly here, the, the sensitivity is the body's, over, let's say, overreaction. Let's, I mean, it could just mm-hmm. be the way they're wired, right, their reaction to it, but we'll describe mm-hmm. it as an overreaction from, from the norm. Yes. And the toxicity is actually... The, the either the buildup of the because the doses in the poison right the the buildup of a toxin or or the system's uh, detox abilities overwhelm so it so it builds up is that what you're yeah, saying ex- yeah exactly okay so if somebody's okay. sensitive all the detox strategies in the world isn't going to necessarily calm things down perfect you you understand uh, and I think this gets confusing for a lot of healthcare practitioners who who recognize that this is a very sensitive patient and is toxic and are baffled when those same patients can't take or tolerate the kinds of treatments that would normally work for most people in that, in that category. You know, I, I run into patients like that not unfrequently in my practice, and a, a couple spring to mind immediately, where they even struggled with accepting an acupuncture treatment, which mm-hmm. in the grand scheme of things is pretty mild intervention. Yeah, exactly. And, and those patients confuse others. And unfortunately, I think there are millions of them out there. Um, at a certain point, as I alluded to before, they tend to not want to tell anyone how sensitive they are because they've already learned that no one's going to believe them. And... <laughs> It's funny how quickly we train our patients to be quiet, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, 
and keep in mind, you can have both sensitivity and toxicity. Yeah. Like mold is a perfect example. Mold toxin is a toxin, but it sensitizes the nervous system to make people more sensitive. So that's where it really gets complicated. Now, you talk about rebooting as well as a strategy mm -hmm. for the sensitivity. And can you summarize that quickly? And then we'll get into some of the specifics of some of these sensitizing agents. Yeah, I, I sure can. And I'll try to use that as a segue. So for people who know me, the fact that I'm using the word rebooting is hysterically funny because I am one of the least technological people you ever meet. <laughs> but, but even I have discovered that when my computer locks up, if I turn it off and turn it back on again, it works again. And so that imagery is very, very helpful to understand what we need to do to change things in the body. Because until... Recently, we've always thought about our interventions as being um, gentle. For example, you're magnesium deficient, I'll give you some magnesium. Your, your adrenal is low, I'll give you some supplements that will build up your adrenal functioning. And it's, I'll give you something that will get you past wherever you, your health needs to be boosted. But in the illnesses that we're seeing now, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, Lyme, mold toxicity, autism, neurodegenerative illnesses. These are illnesses that have gone past the point where a simple nutrient supplement, supplementation is going to fix it. If you've got a system that is literally shut down and you need to literally reboot it to get it functioning again. You know, and one of the many, as we'll talk about, one of the many things acupuncture is something that we know can do this rebooting and part of my book was to present this literally a new model of how to treat chronic illness that once you've gone past a certain point you have to reboot it before it will even respond to the things that it needs i so agree i've used that term in my practice well to help patients understand what we're trying to do, because they come in with the model, exactly what you're saying, that we're trying to fix something. It's like, no, there's nothing broken. You just need to unplug it and replug it in. <laughs> right. And, and the rebooting model being electrical in nature when we're talking about computers, that's the easiest way to understand rebooting, because all of these conditions um, inflame the nervous system in areas of the brain and once it's inflamed, the normal neural pathways aren't functioning properly, and you literally have to reboot those pathways to get them working again. And in, in my book, um, Toxic, with a number of side terms to help explain it, it's called Toxic, Heal Your Body from Mold Toxicity, Lyme Disease, Chemical Sensitivities, and Chronic Environmental Illness. About two-thirds of the book is devoted to rebooting technologies. I literally take it system by system, rebooting the nervous system, rebooting the immune system, rebooting uh, the intestinal function, rebooting hormonal function, and so on, to try to help people understand all of the different possible ways you could approach this in order to obtain healing. Can we jump ahead now to porphyria? Your, your chapter <laughs> sure. on, and yeah, we, we can. And you're you're talking about subclinical porphyria or secondary. I think I've heard it called a couple times, rather than the classic. Or are you talking about the classic acute? Or are you talking about both? No, I'm not talking about both. Okay. Um, for listeners, classical porphyria is an extremely rare genetic disease in which you build up these things called perf porphyrins, which make you really sick. Honestly, in my 47 years of medical practice, I've never seen a case. However, uh, we are now beginning to understand that what you called secondary porphyria, which is porphyria that's triggered by either an infection or a toxin, is much more common than we had realized. And first, again, for readers, let's talk about what porphyria is. Um, 
when the, the body normally has to break down red blood cells every 90 days. We make them, we break them down. And in the process of breaking down the red blood cells, um, the main component of red blood cells, as everyone knows, is hemoglobin. So in breaking down heme, we require certain enzymes in order to recycle it properly. Secondary porphyria occurs when the body lacks the right amount of those enzymes and you build up some of the breakdown products of heme, which are porphyrins. So porphyria is simply an accumulation of these breakdown products that the body is not able to process as it normally would, and it makes it in its own way toxic. Okay, so So, I'm going to pause you here for a second to help me mm -hmm. and to get a little bit technical. So you're not talking about the synthesis side of porphyria. You're talking about heme oxygenase and ferroportin and the transportation side of things. Correct. There's eight named porphyrins that will potentially build up, and any one of them is capable of causing this thing that we call porphyria. So here's here's a clinical question. I have a patient who struggles, and she's been diagnosed with Lyme and multiple other things before and after, and she just got back from a hip replacement. And she sent me a picture of her arm that looks like it's been just bruised, just a big, giant, reddish bruise. And the first thing that came, she said, nobody can figure out what's going on. And the first thing that came to my mind is, well, is she bleeding because her heme pathway breakdown and transportation isn't working right in that area and things have just leaked out? Is, is that a sign that you see with this porphyria or is that something else? I, I think that's something else. Okay. Um, you, you can get a variety of um, clotting abnormalities with some of these illnesses so that the body doesn't clot. You can get a buildup of literally bleeding under the skin, or that's possible. But what you're describing wouldn't be porphyria. Certain types of porphyria can be associated with a wide variety of rashes. Certain types of porphyria would be associated with, um, if you collect your urine and leaving it out in the sun for a couple of hours, it will turn brown or purple. Um, That's rare, but that's more typical of porphyria. So let me, let's talk about what typical porphyria symptoms yes, are. Yes, bring, bring, bring me back for okay. my... <laughs> okay, okay. The, when someone has an acute secondary porphyria, what you normally would see most prominently is intense nausea and vomiting, intense anxiety to the point of paranoia and panic attack, and intense depression. So, for example, if someone is being treated for with Lyme disease or Bartonella, some of the antibiotics that we use for that also can treat um, chlamydia pneumonia, which is some people consider it a co-infection. It's a common um, infection that accompanies Lyme and and the co-infections. What's unique about it is if you kill chlamydia pneumonia, it releases porphyrin specifically and can trigger an acute porphyric reaction. So many physicians who treat Lyme will use their normal antibiotics and then assume that this is a Herx. Um, The tip-off that it's not a Herx is that Herxes typically only last two or three days. This goes on and on and on, unremitting nausea and vomiting and unreal anxiety. And then if that's happening, that's the tip-off that the antibiotic has triggered this, and you need to treat that in order to resolve this, or it will just keep going on. And will that happen with Babesia as well because it's a blood cell infection? or It depends on the antibiotic that you use. Okay. Mepron, Mepron would be unlikely to do that, but Mepron is usually used with Zithromax and Azithromycin, which can trigger that. So, yeah, you can get that with that, with that kind of a treatment. And have you seen that happen with herbal remedies as well? Some of the herbal, quote-unquote, antibiotics? Much, much, much more rarely. It really doesn't tend to do that. Um, Again, what's happening for many of these people is that it's the chlamydia uh, that's being killed, releasing the toxins, creating the secondary porphyria. Now, once people are prone to porphyria, 
there's a wide variety of antibiotics that tend to, on their own, trigger porphyria. And if patients go to the internet and look up all of the different medications that can trigger uh, porphyria, you know, they'll start to freak out. So please understand that all of them don't do that, and it's quite, it's fairly unusual, but rarely are those in the herbal category. That's good to know. Now, also, you bring up carbon monoxide, and carbon monoxide is produced with the breakdown of heme and is a signaling hormone or signaling hormone, signaling molecule. And I assume you're talking about something like excess nitric oxide, so where it builds up to higher levels? Well, that's one part of it, and actually probably the, not the most common part. The usual common part is actual exposure to carbon monoxide. Uh, people who are using propane to heat with or kerosene and it's not vented properly um, may or have a leaky source of propane in the house may actually build up true carbon monoxide poisoning. Okay. And it's probably more common than people realize. I interviewed a woman, it's about two years ago now, and she got carbon monoxide poisoning from a stove in an apartment underneath her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it can happen. And again, I'm bringing it up so that the focus of my book is on sensitivity. What causes it? What do you want to look for? And how do you treat it? And so it's also for people to recognize if they have any of those exposures. Uh, carbon monoxide poisoning uniquely causes, amongst other things, extreme sensitivity to light, sound, touch, and smell. I mean, it's like a global hypersensitization of the nervous system. That's such a common report from people with Lyme disease. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. And is that just the same mechanism? They're both irritating the nervous system in the same way? Or do you think these are concurrent issues going on? Well, well, it's inflaming it in different ways, but the end result of that inflammation is a hyper-reactive, hyper-sensitized nervous system. So whether we're talking Bartonella, which in the, in the Lyme world, Bartonella does it much more often than, than Lyme itself or Babesia. And, and one of the things that I'm, I'm trying to teach to people who've been in the Lyme world for a long time is that mold toxicity does it at least as commonly, if not more so. And it's important that people start looking for mold toxicity in Lyme patients who are not progressing the way you'd like, because the symptoms of mold toxicity and Lyme, particularly Bartonella, are very, very close. And let's pause there for a moment as well, because in your, your chapter on infections, you lead with Bartonella. And I thought that was, especially in this day and age where Lyme Borreliosis is the rock star of the stealth infections, why did you choose to lead with Bartonella? Because symptomatically, that's what causes sensitivity much more than Lyme per se. Interesting. Um, so, you know, the way Lyme evolved is that, you know, back in the 80s and 90s when, when physicians were first getting interested in Lyme disease, it was really just Lyme. That's all we knew about. And we treated it like we treated other infectious illnesses with massive amounts of antibiotics. And as our understanding evolved by the late 90s, we had recognized that Babesia was a player as well. We had begun to understand that when a tick bit someone, not only did they inject Borrelia, but they also injected Babesia. And although we also knew that they could inject Ehrlichia and Bartonella, that didn't really hit consciousness till a little later. So I may be overemphasizing Bartonella, but it's because I don't think it as, is appreciated as huge a player as it is. If, if you simply look at the percentage of these microbes in the tick, when it bites someone, in most states, you're looking at percentages such as 40% of ticks, for example, in one population in California, 40% carry Borrelia, 44% carry Bartonella, 10% carry 
um, Ehrlichia, and 8% carry Babesia. So if statistically you're going to look at what would be the co-infection you're going to find most often, it would be with Borrelia, it would be Bartonella. And I don't know that Bartonella has quite been accepted as the major player that it actually is. I have a friend in the area who's a retired vet and had a very successful practice. And every time I bump into him, he's hopping up and down about Bartonella. And mm -hmm. even to the point of saying, you know, I should put together a conference and bring together veterinarians and the medical people because this is really a serious problem. So you have you have allies out there. I've, I'm not going to disagree with you. And there, there are so many times, again, you know, the, the rock star image of Lyme disease and Borrelia, but, right. but so frequently, I mean, how often do we get a patient where they just have one infection, whether it's opportunistic or a co-infection that came along? Rarely. Yeah. So, so those of us who have been in this field for a long time have come to understand my love of complexity, if you will. <laughs> um, it's not going to be usually just Lyme. It's often going to be Lyme and something else, maybe many something else's. And Lyme will affect the pituitary's ability to regulate hormones. So you need to look at the endocrine system and, and, on, and on we go. So... Those of us who work in this field have come to understand that we need to look at multiple complicated variables constantly to move our patient towards health. So now that we've got the body activated, one of the main activating cells in the immune system are the mast cells. And mm -hmm. they're, they're starting to get a bad name, but they're there, they're there for a reason. <laughs> right? They, they have a big function. Tell me, tell me what's going on with there and where they get off the rails. I'm sorry. They need a new PR agent. Yeah, um, they definitely do. <laughs> like, like all body systems, they were designed by, I presume, divine forces to keep us healthy. And that's what mast cells are designed to do. Mast cells are present in every tissue of the body especially in the tissues of the body that are closest to the outside world where they can interface with whatever the outside world is throwing at us. So we have more mast cells in our sinuses, our GI tract, um, primarily. And mast cells' function is to coordinate how the immune system works with the nervous system in fighting toxins and infectious agents. So if they're doing their job, and we love them for it, we need our mast cells. If they're doing their job, they work great. But if they, they get to this state that we call activated, and what that means is that somehow they too have become so inflamed or irritated that they are what I will call trigger happy. So minuscule stimuli that normally would not bother them will trigger their release of literally 200 different biochemical mediators that they make. The main one is histamine, and they can make it in seconds when they're exposed. So the tip-off to mast cells being activated or hyperreactive, if you will, is someone is exposed to either a scent or even more important, they eat something or drink something and within seconds, they experience palpitations, sweating, pain, abdominal discomfort, diarrhea, itching. These are all symptoms of histamine release. And it, it simply means that they're overreactive. And I, I emphasize in my book that two of the things that cause this primarily are mold toxicity and Bartonella. Other things can do it, but those are the two that we see most commonly. Now, once this activation has occurred and people are having more histamine, now you take someone who's already overreactive and we make them exponentially more overreactive. So it's important to identify patients who have become mast cell activated and treat it so we quiet that down so our patients can move forward. 
Otherwise, they stay in that hyperreactive state. And these are the folks that can't tolerate one tiny dose of a homeopathic without getting thrown under the bus. So how does, I have a couple questions here. The first one is, so I would understand the mast cells getting activated. Say you ate something and it worked its way down through the stomach and into the intestines, and then you had a bunch of diarrhea, right? So that would take 45 minutes or so to make it no, all the no, way through. Maybe no, no, a little bit no, else. But how, nope, nope. I'm wrong I, on how long at transit time? You're, you're right, but what's happening is Tell me the, what's histamine, happening. the histamine which is being released instantaneous on contact so with whatever is touching those cells. Yeah. Nope, in the gut. As soon as, as soon as you swallow something, it's already in the stomach. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So those mast cells are irritated. They produce histamine in large quantities, and they will set off waves of peristalsis that will trigger the diarrhea immediately. So it's the sure. dump of histamine that creates it, doesn't... Correct. Okay. It's a dump of histamine that creates the sweating, the palpitations, the uh, tachycardia, the itching. It's an immediate histamine release primarily. Now, there's a lot of other things going on there, but that's the primary event that's doing it. And for some patients, even drinking water, if they're in a particularly overstimulated um, mast cell place, that will trigger it. I've heard of this. Yeah, and so people just the hear mechanical, that. Go, just, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's the mechanical touching of anything, even water, to those irritated cells, and boom, we're off. You know, and you can imagine someone saying, I get sick when I drink water, and, you know, most people are rolling their eyes and going, oh, really, brother, okay, you need a higher dose of your Xanax. And that's wrong. It's a very real thing, and it really is difficult for those patients, and it's a very real phenomenon. So as we begin to wind down here, let's move into rebooting. So somebody's got this type of sensitivity, reactivity. What are the general ideas in rebooting? Now, I realize it's going to be different for each system, but there has to be overlapping or underlying. Right. Well, again, there's a ton of information in my book on that. I can't even possibly deal with it here. Let me talk about preparatory rebooting, which is there's a couple of things that need to be done first before you can even get at what's causing it. And so, I mean, key ultimately to treat these patients is to clearly identify either mold or Lyme or Bartonella or whatever the causative agent is, because that will lead to healing. But many patients can't even start there. They can't even get them to step one until they do some things to start quieting down this hyperreactive system. So one of the rebooting, and it's not the first, is is identifying and treating mast cell activation. But before you get there, you may have to do two other things. The first is rebooting the limbic system. The limbic system is a part of the brain that is primarily concerned with emotion, but also concerned with uh, coordinating how emotion and memory works with pain, cognition, energy, and especially emotion. Almost all of my sensitive patients have a, an inflamed limbic system, which is specifically caused, again, same broken record, mold. Lyme, Bartonella are key things that inflame the limbic system. So there's a couple of methods that have evolved to treat it. Um, The one I've worked with the most is a system developed by Annie Hopper called DNRS, Dynamic Neural Retraining Systems. could also be called Limbic Retraining. And it's a, a series of if you will, exercises and visualizations that patients do daily to quiet the limbic system. And having had well over 200 of my most sensitive patients use it, almost all with wonderful benefits, that's almost always the first thing I do. There's a couple of other systems that have evolved to do the same thing. There's a fellow in England named Ashok Gupta who has what he calls an amygdala retraining system, which is very similar. But 
quieting down that limbic system is really important. The second big player here is an understanding of the vagus nerve and what its role plays in this whole process. And there's a, a new concept, if you will, called polyvagal theory, developed by a fellow named Stephen Porges, that is a new understanding of, of the vagus nerve, what it's connected to, and how critical it is in quieting down this process. The new understanding is that for many, many years, we've thought of the autonomic nervous system as being basically two opposing systems, the sympathetic system, which we call the fight or flight, and the parasympathetic system, which is involved with relaxation. The new understanding is there's actually a branch of the vagus nerve that hasn't been appreciated fully called the ventral branch that controls our perception of safety. And in almost all the patients that get to this sensitized state, they are being threatened by stimuli that they can't control and don't know where the next one's coming from. For example, in our patients with mast cell activation, many of my patients no longer want to eat because they don't know what's going to throw them under the bus because it's not an allergy. You can't predict it. It's, I don't know how irritable my mast cells are, so I don't know how horrible I'm going to feel. So the nervous system goes on hypervigilant alert so that it's literally highly focused and hardwired to assess potential threat and it gets to the point that it does that excessively. So in the same way that mast cells, which are supposed to coordinate these reactions, start overreacting, now the nervous system reacts. It's not psychological. It's a hardwired reaction of the nervous system itself so that it is overreacting to stimuli. So treating that, quieting the vagus nerve and the connected cranial nerves, becomes a key component to treatment. And there's a number of approaches that we can use to do that with. That's so beautifully woven together and reminds me of so many of the, the patients. When I was studying acupuncture in England, the, the British at the time had a, a saying and they said, I feel better within myself. So they come back for a couple treatments. Well, how's your back doing? Well, my back still hurts, but I feel better within myself. And that's pointing toward that awareness of, well, that's, that part of the nervous system is calming down. They're feeling safer in their body. They're more able to then relax. And then, then the rest of healing can begin. Uh, you, you bring up some fascinating, fascinating points here. And I think people are really going to resonate, are resonate, I'm sure, as they're listening to this, uh, to, to your message and how you put this all together. It's really, really well done. Uh, thank you. And I, I, to be honest, I, I really like what I was able to write. And I really think it's going to help potentially thousands of people if they can begin to understand there's a reason for what they have. It's diagnosable. It's treatable. And they don't have to keep wrestling with that if they can begin to approach this in a different way. Exactly. And you're pulling together, I can't say this properly, I've just got a sense of it. Like you're, you're pulling together the, the alternative treatment world, but you're doing it with the science basis. And yeah. I tell people sometimes, you know, you can stand on your head and chant and that'll, you know, that'll be enough to, to change your perspective and, and, and start healing. And, but there's a scientific explanation for why that's, that's working. And you've really, you've really brought it home. And I want to thank you for being so generous with your time. And also, I have a final question for you. And this is, given your book and your love of complexity, this is going to be maybe the hardest question you've ever been asked. <laughs> but for people with chronic infections and chronic illness, what are the three most important things for them to recognize or do to begin healing? Probably not the hardest I've been asked, but maybe the most difficult to answer. Um, only three, huh? Um, we'll give you poetic first, license. <laughs> thank you. Um, first, I think it's critical that people keep a positive attitude 
and believe that there is help that is possible. Um, most of the people that I treat, maybe the ones that you treat, have have seen dozens of healthcare providers and not gotten help and are kind of down on the possibility that they can get well. And if I had to pick one thing that really matters is coming to the table with the possibility that um, they can feel better, in fact, perhaps even get completely well. If there's a second thing, it's if you're not getting helped by the people you're working with, find somebody else. It's critical that you work with someone who understands complexity so that they can put all this together in a pattern that's right for you. Um, there's a new organization that's out now called ICI, spelled I-S-E-A-I. It stands for the International Society for Environmentally Acquired Illness that is attempting to teach physicians and healthcare providers how to do this in the most scientifically known way that we've got right now and to certify them so that perhaps patients will have some avenue to find healthcare providers that can, can actually help them. And the third one, hmm. I don't know, the phrase that comes to mind is don't give up. And maybe a fourth would be believe in yourself even if your family, friends, neighbors, and doctors aren't hearing you or believing in you, you know that there's something wrong that's fixable and they haven't identified it yet. Believe in yourself and believe in your intuition. Brilliant. I'll make a poster. <laughs> so can I plug my book one more time? Absolutely. Okay. That's the actually the final question is please let people know where they can buy it, your websites, anything you'd like to share. Absolutely. So first, you, you certainly can go to my website. I have newsletters and tons of information on it. It's simply uh, com, And the book, which I'm thrilled about, will be out on October 9th. You can get it through Amazon, either ebook or full paperback. Um, you can order it now even. It's called Toxic, Heal Your Body from Mold Toxicity, Lyme Disease, Multiple Chemical Sensitivities, and Environmentally Acquired Illness. And I hope that this will be of help to you. It undoubtedly will. Undoubtedly will. Neil, thank you so much for your time. Well, uh, McKay, thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to share what I, what I think I know. This was a super interesting episode. And you know, what really surprised me, the way he was talking about neural retraining and how it's connected to the limbic system and things like that, it reminds me of how you talk about that that treatment in five element acupuncture called it's called possession, but I don't like to say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of its, we have lots of nicknames for it. The official name is the releasing of the seven dragons to devour the seven internal demons. So we call it dragons or IDs or something like that. But yeah, demons or possession is one of the nicknames for the treatment because the name's so long. But you're right. I never really thought of that. It really is a form of neural reprogramming. What people say after this treatment is, wow, you know, nothing's... Nothing's changed and everything's different. So we use it with people with PTSD, people who've been in bad car accidents, emotional traumas, things like that. And there's a version you do for external traumas, such as being infected with Lyme disease. It just seems to free up the mind to, so you're a little bit more in control of yourself. So yeah, I think, I think you're right, Aurora. Good insight. Thanks for sharing that. If you like what we're doing here at Lime Ninja Radio, hit the subscribe button so you won't miss an episode. If you really like what we're doing, leave us a review on your podcast app. And if you really, really like what we're doing, I'd appreciate it if you support us by donating a buck a month. For just a one dollar, you can help us make $1, the world. One dollar, one dollar, one dollar. 
Hot dog for one dollar. For just no, one. support Lime Ninja Radio for one dollar. You can help us make the world a better place for people with tick-borne diseases. Just head on over to our new homepage, www.limeninjaradio.com, and look for the patron link under the How Can We Help You headline. It should be How Can You Help Us <laughs> for that particular one. But there's other great stuff, other good links there, including the symptom tracker and a list of interviews, things like that. Anyway. Why am I thinking about that? I'm thinking about redoing the homepage. That's why I'm thinking about that. Okay. We need to update things, constantly update, make things better. It's not quite right yet. Anyway, a big shout out to all our patrons. Thank you so much for supporting us at Lime Ninja Radio. Just a dollar a month. It's kind of like holding up your lighter for a concert. Just yes. let, letting us know you're out there, you're listening, and you really like what we're doing. So we those, really appreciate it. For one of those 80s metal bands. Exactly. Or Metallica or something, yeah. <laughs> right? If you have any feedback for us, just send us an email to feedback at limeninjuradio.com. We will read everyone, may not respond, but we do read all their email. And last, as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with the Lime Ninja fact of the day. Did you know ninjas can whistle in sign language? Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.